Hi everyone, I'm Josh, and this is The Emerald, Currents and Trends Through a Mythic Lens, the podcast where we explore an ever-changing world and our lives in it through the lens of myth, story, and imagination. The Emerald, all that's happening on this green jewel in space. The summer I turned 16, I went to northern Canada for a two-week wilderness expedition into the vastness of the Kluwani Range near the Alaskan border. A year earlier, I'd seen the film Never Cry Wolf, with its sweeping Arctic landscapes and themes of solo immersion in nature, and decided that what I wanted to do with my life more than anything else was to explore the wilds for extended periods of time. I could say a lot about the endless bus ride up there, the vastness of northern British Columbia stretching out on either side of the Alaskan highway. I remember we saw a young black bear by the side of the road, numerous bald eagles, spiky pine forests that seemed to go on for hundreds of miles, and of course there were many high points on the trip itself too, close-up views of glaciers, panoramic vistas of high peaks. But there's one memory that's different than all the others. Certain memories are imbued with a particular light within the consciousness, a bright urgency that stays when other memories fade. They mark us, and in that marking, they open up doors of possibility that had previously remained shut. I can't tell you much about the hike up to the Quill Peak base camp at this point. It was all uphill, and I remember by the time we got there, I was pretty beat. The wind was whistling through shoulder-high alder scrub that we had just hiked through. All of a sudden, there was a tremendous crashing noise— a primal bellowing sound, and barreling through the alder scrub comes a creature that I never imagined. They never tell you that a bull Alaskan moose is more like the size of a dinosaur. The shoulder-high alder didn't even tickle his belly. I could have stood underneath him easily, or lain with my arms outstretched across his antlers and not touched antler to antler. He was, in a way, the biggest thing I've ever seen. The hair rose on my spine. My limbs tingled. Time seemed to take on an entirely different quality. It was probably only a few seconds it took that moose to run by, but it seemed like I was catapulted into another zone entirely, like I was wide awake and dreaming at the same time. Animals have not only shared the planet with us, as we often hear on nature shows, which is, of course, a noble description intended to cultivate empathy for animals and urgency around their preservation, but animals are much more than this more than just co-inhabitants of the world. In this episode, I explore the idea that the human mind, thought, imagination, language, and ingenuity are utterly dependent upon and grow directly out of our experience of animals. In fact, it is difficult to imagine that the human mind could have evolved at all without animals. And what a future human mind would be like without direct experience of animals is a bleak thought indeed. Today on The Emerald, the Fauna Mandala, Animals, Imagination, and Consciousness. Have you ever cleared out a cave or shelter for a potential campsite and experienced the rise of hair on your neck when you try to ascertain whether there is something else in there? 
a bobcat or a fox perhaps, something feral in the dark. To share space with animals does not simply mean to co-inhabit a world with them in an abstract sense. It meant for a very many people for a very long time to regularly and often be in a state of heightened awareness, of kinesthetic flow, of wordless perception. Consider that for 98% of human history, everything that human beings did was utterly and completely dependent upon and interwoven with animals. And I don't mean domesticated animals. I mean wild, untamed animals. Animals were food. Animals were shelter. Animals were clothing. Animals were fuel. Everything was measured in relation to animals. The right time to move house, to follow the vast herds of bison and aurochs and ibex and eland. The measurement of time and seasons, calculated in relation to the calving of young. There is now a theory that animal paintings at some of the great cave art sites use lengths of animal fur to demarcate time. And just as much as animals were the source of food and sustenance and life and fertility, they were also the force that could take a person right out of this world. The same animal that could feed you could also kill you. The animal herd was therefore the divine source itself, and also was the sacred experience it granted, the heightened consciousness that the individual experienced when witnessing it, when tracking it, when drawing food from it, and ultimately when dying beneath its pounding hooves or flashing horns. Sit by a river in meditation, and a congruence of experience arises. The river becomes somehow fused with the consciousness of the meditator, bright, mobile, clear. Now imagine that the river is an animal herd, a living river of bristling fur, antlers, bone, teeth, Imagine a river of glistening elk eyes, of spiky antlers. Imagine a million caribou breathing steam in the first rays of the morning. These animal interactions, characterized in the perceiver by a quickening of breath, a shiver up the spine, a heightened awareness, widened eyes, just like my moose encounter, become a state of revelation that is deliberately sought, a bright demarcation on the spirit, a geography of consciousness that we long to return to. Just as once you see the moose, it stays with you, and even though it's dangerous, you long to see it again, you recount the story, and you begin to measure each life experience on whether it is as revelatory as that time you saw that moose. The seeking of the trance state, then, which ancient peoples did with regularity and probably with great precision, is a very real effort to re-encounter the animal herd. Going into this state with deepened breath, heightened awareness, dilated eyes, bristling hair, rushes of energy, is concurrent with the experience of encountering an animal, and also with being an animal, which is exactly why the trance state is spoken of in so many cultures in theriomorphic terms. The San people speak of lion hairs growing out of the back of the entranced. In India, the trance medium is the lion being ridden by the divine. The Siberian drummer becomes a bird. The half-shaman, half-animal is painted on walls from Spain to South Africa and has been for the past 40,000 years. The San paint bulls with threads of light rising from their backs and herds thundering around the collapsed shaman's head. This experience of becoming animal is not theoretical or metaphorical, but kinesthetic and somatic. 
harnessing the raw exhilaration of a thousand generations of direct animal encounter. So animals find their place in the heart of human ritual imagination, which means right at the center of human history and experience. The animal was, is, and always has been a portal to a deeper state of consciousness. It's no wonder most spiritual traditions even today, even most of the major world religions, invoke forces and energies that are animal in nature. And if you think your religion is exempt, walk into the nearest church and check out the depictions of angels and their bird wings. It makes sense that if the animal is a gateway to expanded consciousness, then the human experience itself would best be described, articulated, and built upon in animal terms. So animals are the foundation of much human story. We can see the centrality of animals in story trickle from cross-cultural myths through fairy tales to Looney Tunes cartoons to modern-day Pixar blockbusters. And for the early storytellers, to invoke an animal was not a metaphor or a representation. If you listen to the recent episode on breath and horse myths, you know what I've been saying about the place of animals in myth, that animals occupy not a symbolic place, but are there to invoke a set of direct visceral experiences. These visceral experiences traveled across generations, and access to these experiences were refined, harnessed, and ritualized. Eagle dances, buffalo dances, zebra dances, turtle dances, the yogic harnessing of the horse of the inhale and the exhale in pranayama, martial arts forms invoking the movements of tigers, cranes, and praying mantis, not just parroting animal movements, but developing a refined system in which the chi or vital energy of each animal was understood and cultivated through movement, the same vital energy that came to be felt in India as a swan that spread its wings across the ribcage with each inhale. But people did not just launch themselves into trance as animals, dance as animals, sing of animals, speak of animals. They saw animals everywhere. When they picked up bone and stone to carve, they carved predominantly animals, including the oldest figurative piece of art in the world found so far, the Lion Man of Lowenmensch, half lion, half man, the human in an animal trance, perhaps, a proto-Mithras or Narasimha, certainly a vision of the fusing of the animal squarely in the human mind. This vision extended beyond the terrestrial world. People looked up in the night sky and saw animals within the flaming lights, a vision which would later develop into the Western and Eastern astrological systems and would inform Western science, alchemy, and medicine for millennia. And of course, they painted animals on cave walls. Much more on this in another episode. But for today, let's look at what those paintings became. For over many years, they became something else. Words. Here's a quote. You could begin with the crab that scratches in the sand. The name of the animal is the action or sound it makes or its color. The name parents other like meanings belonging to other things, leaving the animal behind. Grapho, Greek, to scratch and so to write. 
grama, the scratches, graph, grammar, grab. Walking in those hills, I am looking at visual puns. I can see how readily the creatures translate, were translated long ago, into thought and use and language. What is lost is a sense of their intense beauty, that they are alive. The word carries the living thing concealed across millennia. This is a quote from Susan Brind Morrow, Egyptologist, in her beautiful book, The Names of Things. She's describing how the simple act of watching and listening to a crab scratch in the sand, gra, 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 gave us the word for crab, scratch, scrit, write, graph, grammar, and perhaps seeing that crab scratch gave people the idea of writing to begin with, and the rest is history. But what is so often lost, as she says, is the power, the life force that used to be delivered by that word. Words once upon a time perhaps conveyed much more of a direct transmission of a particular force of nature, and often those forces were animal forces. She goes on, The flamingo is the hieroglyph for red. All red things, anger, blood, the desert, are spelled with the flamingo. Flamingo, flaming. In Greek, its name is phenisopterus, phoenix with feathers of fire. The riddle continues. The delicate, breakable flamingos breed on ash cones in the evaporated bed of Lake Natron in Central Africa. The new birds arise from the ashes. The flamingos in the gray volcanic ash. The phoenix rising out of the fire. These visions of African animals form the first hieroglyphs. In 2017, rudimentary rock writings were discovered, more than 5,000 years old, that shed light on the origins of Egyptian hieroglyphic language. Almost all of the depictions are of animals. The giraffe becomes the verb to foresee. The human concept of foresightedness has probably always been linked to an animal, whether a high-soaring hawk or a long-necked giraffe that can see over the tree line. The question is whether this concept would have existed for humans were there not animals to embody it. You see, there's a reason why so many words are associated with animals. Because if a human wants to convey to another human the ability to foresee, they can either attempt to make up a random sound or symbol for it, or they can point to something in nature that reflects that meaning. And mostly what there is to point to are animals. Which is another way of asking... Would we be nearly as intelligent without animals to teach us about ourselves? Or without animals, would we have complex language at all? More animals arise out of the mist. The saddlebill stork is the picture that defines the word for soul. The fast-moving falcon carries the spirit after death. The white vulture becomes the letter A. In Hebrew, it's the ox that takes that honored place of the first letter, opening the gates of a journey through the alphabet that will lead through several other animal letters, including N, whose distinctive zigzag shape still carries the image of the serpent that inspired it in ancient Egypt thousands of years ago. Much, much more on the letter N in other episodes. There's some magic buried there at the heart of the alphabet. At Gobekli Tepe, a 12,000-year-old Neolithic site that has caused many archaeologists to rethink their understanding of the sophistication of Neolithic culture, carvings have been found. 
carvings of animals that mirror many of the primary signs of the modern zodiac. And some scientists believe that a few particular bull paintings in Paleolithic caves, which are adorned with an eerily familiar pattern of six dots, may be an early imagination of the constellation Taurus as a bull complete with its neighbor, the Pleiades. Birds dominate the Egyptian mind in the form of hieroglyphs for the cormorant, the stork, several varieties of ibis, the falcon, the hawk, the vulture, the duck, the lapwing, the sparrow, a complete apiary of word and therefore thought and therefore consciousness. Birds are so associated with thought, spirit, the soul, the journey, that it's difficult to imagine spiritual experience, notions of spiritual travel and journeying, even visions of spirit itself, having been formed by humans without birds to show us the way. The bororo soar like vultures, the Inuit transform into birds, as do the Tupinamba and the Carib. The San paint fork-tailed beings that colonial anthropologists assumed for years were some kind of mermaid, until they actually asked the San themselves, who explained that the fork-tailed men were half-human, half-swift or swallow, and depicted the person in trance, soaring out of a crack between the worlds like swallows emerge from cracks and rock faces, flying through the spiritual realms. To the heavens, to the well at the end of the world, to the depths of the underworld, to spirit-filled lakes and seas, around the earth, to the moon and sun, to distant stars and back again, does the shaman bird fly, says Roshi Joan Halifax, a Santa Fe friend who authored a book on shamanism way back when that was one of my first influences. The upward trajectory of the spiritual journey is so often depicted as the eagle's journey, or the ravens, or the swallows, or the falcons, that the birds themselves must have inspired such journeying and made it possible just as much as they became the vehicles and symbols for it. On a more functional level, there is no doubt human beings have wanted to fly in the skies ever since they saw birds soaring above. Certainly, if you've ever seen a raven riding high air currents, engaging in what can only be called play, flipping over onto its back and then plummeting down only to rise up again, you felt the same call. This is the vision that caused infamous Icarus to want to make himself a pair of wings and soar up to the sun. And of course, 3,000 years later, our modern airplanes are modeled after the basic anatomical structure of birds. Would we have ever thought of such a thing? A flying machine in the sky? without birds to inspire us? And can we think of a thing that ultimately does not lead us back to these animal forms in one way or another? Futurist Maurice Conti recently did a TED Talk on intuitive AI. His team challenged intelligent computer systems to imagine designs for cars and planes and drones and more, and then to intuitively evolve those designs. When left alone to intuitively evolve designs, the AI systems came up with drone chassis that mimic the structure of the flying squirrel pelvis, car frames that look suspiciously like they are constructed from bird bones. It seems that advancement may mean imagining our way back to nature's inherent forms and methods. As Conti puts it, to a future in which things are not built, they are grown. In this way, animals can be seen as the pinnacle of the planetary imagination. Or if the planet were a mind, animal life would be the spirals of thought and dream and vision of that mind. Our own experience of them informs art, ritual, dance, music, language, 
spiritual vision, technological innovation, and mind and consciousness itself. Close to two million species of animals in all. The fauna mandala. I never knew that a deer could have fangs. I'd never heard of such a thing, which is why, even more so than the moose sighting in Alaska, I count the time when I saw a musk deer in Nepal as the most mysterious animal sighting of my life so far. It was early in the morning, trekking a steep hillside, shafts of light pouring through the rhododendrons and pines. There wasn't much warning, a rustle, our guide gasping and pointing. My head turns quickly to the side and up to see what he's pointing at. And there he is, above my head, the steepness of the slope making his leap even more impressive. He looks like he's flying this silver-gray-black bullet of a deer, legs all tucked in as he rockets down the hillside. And in that quick moment, I catch a flash of something in the shafts of pale sun, translucent blue-white fangs. They look wet, even, projecting down from a delicate whiskered snout. A fanged deer. Imagine that. Humans have shared the earth with strange creatures for centuries upon centuries. 24-foot giant sloths, horses with toes instead of hooves, giant woolly mammoths, creatures that bend the imagination, which makes it all the stranger, I suppose, that we had to go invent even more not content with the kaleidoscope of fauna that we could actually see and interact with, human beings over the ages have envisioned a bestiary that goes beyond the corporeal into the cosmic. Feathered serpents, unicorns, pegasi, gorgons, griffins, dragons, and even a mythical horse that lived in the sea. Perhaps such creatures have something to teach us about how the human imagination works. They are fantastical but still inherently recognizable as creatures. They have limbs, eyes, feathers, scales. It's not until the late 20th century that a few science fiction writers tried to imagine disembodied or creatureless creatures, non-carbon-based, gas-based, Brandon Sanderson's mist wraiths, what have you. But somehow I never felt that the human imagination has fully realized a creatureless creature. Even the four-dimensional calligraphers in that movie Arrival were recognizable as creatures. To me, this shows how creature-bound our imaginations are. It's difficult to imagine anything beyond the fauna kaleidoscope of our own world. Not to mention that all of those imaginary animals may not be so imaginary after all. Stick with me for a second. People naturally assumed for years that the vision of the feathered serpent so prominent in Mesoamerican mythologies was symbolic. Now, with the knowledge that the majority of dinosaur species had feathers, we have to acknowledge that feathered serpents indeed inhabited the earth for millions of years. Could it be that whispers of them linger in our collective DNA, that we have living memory of creatures that lived long before? Now they even say that one-horned, unicorn-like beast lived on Earth 10,000 years ago. And even the mythical hippocampus, the horse of the sea found in Greek and Etruscan and Scottish and Vedic mythology, may have had a real-world counterpart, 
a sort of hoofed land sea mammal that was the progenitor of whales, and dragons. Why would the dragon exist in the global mind from Scotland to China to Mesoamerica to Thailand, in nearly all Indo-European, Near Eastern, and Middle Eastern mythologies? Is it something inherent to human imagination? The vagus nerve come to life? Is it something more? In the late 80s as a child, I saw a Tibetan Buddhist master speak. He told of a time when he wanted to do solo meditation on the top of a particular mountain, so he went there braving the elements on his own. As he reached the summit of the mountain, night fell and a massive storm hit before he had the chance to light a fire. All was darkness and driving hail, illuminated by flashes of terrifying lightning. It was in the residual blaze of one of those flashes that he first saw them. Dragons. Dozens of dragons, silver and gold, slithering in cracks in the rock there on the mountaintop, their bodies entwining into S-shapes. Dragons. At this point in the lecture, the translator paused. She said to the master, Rinpoche, you must realize that to people in the West, what you're saying sounds completely unbelievable. I mean... Are you really saying that you saw dragons? To which the master innocently replied, Oh, we have them in Tibet. Don't you have them here? When I was 24, I did a piece of performance writing that suggested that when a species goes extinct, a butterfly maybe, somehow, through an equation too complex for us to understand, there is less possible for a human being to be. Something dies within us, as if a wedge of the full-spectrum pie of our consciousness is nullified. It's quite possible that as we lose animals, we lose the human imagination. Who would want to imagine a world without tigers, I once heard naturalist and explorer Peter Mathiasen ask. And I think there is a follow-up question to be asked. If we lose tigers, can we still imagine? I probably don't have to remind our listeners of the UN report that just came out detailing the staggering number of species that are facing extinction as a result of human excesses. The deanimation of the world has gone hand-in-hand with the deanimalization of the world. In addition to the horrible and tangible effects that species loss has on the biosphere and the potential devastating impacts on life on the planet, crop growth and pollination, I believe there is another more insidious effect, the effect on the human mind. It has been spoken of today that many of the developments of human mind and imagination are because of animals. Well, here is the inverse theory that I hope never has to be proven. If there were not bird calls, humans would go mad. If there were not the buzz of insects and hummingbirds, our minds would be harder to calm in meditation. If we did not see birds circling the heights, our minds would lose their ability to reach for new horizons. Animals make our consciousness whole. This is why, ultimately, I think that efforts to colonize lifeless worlds are a doomed experiment. I think no matter the simulations we come up with to replicate conditions on Earth, we will not be able to exist free of the imaginative and contextual consciousness bestowed on us by animals in their native context. But that's a topic for another time. Till then, let's do everything we can to preserve the wilds 
and perhaps when looking upon animals, we can see them as the precious treasure they are and treat them with mercy and kindness. And I want to hear of your encounters with animals in the wilderness. Send them to me at theemeraldpodcast at gmail.com, and maybe they'll be cited on future episodes of the show. This episode contains references to several books, films, and TED Talks. Susan Bryn Morrow's The Names of Things. Never Cry Wolf, a classic 1980s film that I highly recommend. The Neolithic Mind by David Lewis Williams. Shamanism by Joan Halifax. The Mistborn Trilogy by Brandon Sanderson, Arrival, the film starring Amy Adams, and Maurice Conti's TED Talk, The Incredible Inventions of Intuitive AI. If you liked what you heard today, please consider becoming a patron. You can find out more at patreon.com slash the Emerald Podcast. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the emerald podcast there are patronage levels starting for as low as six dollars per month and patrons get a variety of benefits that are listed on the site i hope you enjoy today's episode and until next time may we live lives that are driven forth by imagination vision and wonder mm-hmm.